going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning, starting in verse 1. So you can take a moment, you can open your Bible there if you feel so led. There's also going to be the passages on the monitors to my right and to my left. And every once in a while, I feel like I experience something or I hear a word from the Lord. I just can't help but want to share with y'all. And this morning, I just couldn't help but shake this, uh, like this real strong impression. And the Spirit just kind of said, it was, it was before uh, the service started and it was in prayer. And the Spirit was just like, I've got everything in store. Like, I, I'm, I'm in control. I, there was this inner sense of like, I don't feel like I have to do much today. Does that make sense? Like, it was this really, really odd sensation of like, I don't feel like I have to do much today. Because the Holy Spirit is present among us, and the Word of God never returns void in your life. And the power of God's Word spoken over your hearts and absorbed by your hearts and your minds can shake you, literally transfigure you. Literally, your face will change when the Word of God makes its way into you. And so I just thought I'd share that. I don't feel like I have to do much today. I feel like the Holy Spirit is, is more than enough, and the Word of God is more than enough. Oh, what a joy. I'm so excited to conclude this masterclass series that we've been in, and I've also never been more surprised of how much you've all enjoyed it and how much uh, enthusiasm I've, I've heard from it. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. These are the words of Samuel, the prophet. And I want you to watch and listen to the interplay between Samuel, this prophet, and God. They're having this conversation regarding the people of Israel, God's chosen people. Listen to this conversation. It's just wild. Verse 1, it says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. How would you like it if uh, <laughs> that's the first thing you heard? You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly. Let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. You will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. 
and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give him to give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No! They said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Fascinating conversation between Samuel, this prophet, and God. There's this moment where Israel calls upon Samuel to anoint and appoint a king over them. Why was that so important to the Hebrew nation? Why was it so critical for them to have their own human king? I mean, after all, God has shown himself faithful and shown up in the life of the Israelite nation over and over and over again. How could they forget This this is the God of the burning bush. This is the God who rescued Israel out of the hands of Egypt. And yet they forgot that he is ever faithful. There's something to the optical power of observing what someone else has. All the other nations that I want too. Well, every other nation has a human king. Now, why can't I have a human king? Every other nation has a king that goes out before me and fights my battles on my behalf. Why can't I have that? I can't help but wonder what thoughts were going through God's head. Are you kidding me? I've been fighting your battles since day one. How are you so misremembering My faithfulness. You want an appointed king? Okay, you want an appointed king? Perhaps you must learn the hard way. Samuel, give them a king. Give them a king. Maybe they'll learn then. Just give them a king of their choosing. Let's see how this goes. There's there's a principle here in the Old Testament that is contextual to their environment at their time, this monarchy established, but this principle has never expired. It's never expired because the human heart has never changed. And it only changes after we accept 
Christ into our life and the Holy Spirit then inhabits us and fills us from toe to head and now we are a new person, a new creation, entirely brand spanking new. But God may give you what you want most to show you what you need most. God is not above giving you what you want if it teaches you what you need. God is a really, really smart parent. He knows how to teach his children what it is they need to know. And if it causes a little bit of pain on the way, he's okay with that. There's been many a time I look at my five-year-old and I'm like, you're like me. You have to learn the hard way. And if you're a parent in the room, you, you know what I mean. You'll look at one of your children or, and you'll think to yourself, like, they're just going to have to learn that when they fall and hurt themselves, they won't do that again. God may just give you what you want to show you what it is that you desperately need the most. And the king of Israel, want, the king that Israel wanted was actually not the king that they needed. And apparently they did not grasp the cost of rejecting God as their king, even with the warning of Samuel. Mila, if you stand up in that wagon, you will fall backwards. She just fell backwards. God gave them the king that they wanted. It just wasn't the king that they needed. And we're really no different. Because the human heart has never changed. The human heart has stayed the same since Adam and Eve in the garden and the cosmic treason of sin being introduced into the world, reorienting the fabric of humans' conditions and making the gospel so glorious and the message of the gospel being the message of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the grave to offer you new life in him. And the human heart has never changed until the spirit breaks it open and changes it on our behalf. And even then, it's a leaky cup. Even then, you'll need to be refilled regularly. You'll need to fall out the wagon and hurt yourself to be reminded what it is you need. You see, the king we think we want will actually draft our children into wartime conflicts. That's what verse 11 says. That's what the Hebrew nation didn't realize. They must have just not heard Samuel when Samuel was saying, you do, you do realize that the king that you want is going to take everything away from you. The king we think we want will force kids into luxury-producing labor. That's what verse 13 said. The king, the king we think we want will take by force value-producing assets. That's what verse 11 just said. The king we think we want will be guilty of human trafficking. That's what verse 16 and verse 17 just said. The king that we think we want, we don't really know that king now, do we? We don't really know the lowercase k king. 
You see, the Hebrew nation had not yet known a king other than God's presence and fire and smoke and light by night from the moon and fire by, by day and smoke. And there's all these manifestations of God's presence in their midst. And we're talking burning bushes. Come on, that's crazy. But that's how God showed up in their life. They didn't have any context yet for a human king. They were only imagining what this human king would be like because they were observing all of the other nations' kings around them. I mean, after all, Syria, Babylon, they all had human kings, and those human kings go out and fight their battles on their behalf. I mean, surely we can have what everyone else has. But they didn't really know, now did they? The, the corrupting ability of ungodly, unchecked power knows no limits. Oh, but it does have limits. That king just knows no limits. But it has limits. You see, in, in Daniel, we hear about how Daniel teaches a beautiful life of submission before Yahweh, before God of the Bible, and kneels before no other king. The ministry of Daniel is, is just beautiful because he has all this pressure coming from him from every angle. He's got all this social and political and um, societal pressure coming from him, and yet he is just convicted beyond measure to never compromise the convictions he has to kneel before God and God alone while also never uh, putting on the altar any kind of compassion towards those who do not know the God he knows. So it's a beautiful ministry on Daniel's part. And here in Daniel 2.21, we get this idea that God is supremely in charge of placing and misplacing kings. Look at Daniel 2.21. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Do you know what deposes means? It means quickly and without warning, God will flick a king off their throne. That is the power that God has in his right hand, the flicking power. To flick a king off of their throne, he has the power to depose quickly and without warning. And we see this throughout Scripture, and we have seen this actually throughout the history of the world. The corrupting ability of that ungodly, unchecked power, that king knows no limits, but God has limits for them. Now, the king we know we need is very different. Now that we have an idea of the king we think we want, because we have the same hearts as the Hebrews had. The king we know we need is very different. The king we know we need post-resurrection Jesus is a king that fights our battles on our behalf. Well, that's what the Hebrew nation wanted too, so what's the difference? Well, they just couldn't see what was right in front of them. They were so preoccupied with what they did not have, they could not see what they did have right in front of them. They had God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, 
They had the triune God, the all-supreme, majestic, powerful God in front of them. And they could not see it because of the distractions from the other nation's authorities. They simply were blinded to the reality that the king was already in their midst. The king we know we need fights our battles on our behalf and plays on the floor with children, inviting them to come to him. The king we think we want has this corrupt subjugation over children, but the king we know we, we need invites children to his presence, plays on the floor with him. Oh man, that is mind-boggling to think that the, the majestic, all-powerful God is also this like really gentle, tender, modest, like man-God Jesus that invites children. Be like, hey, bring, bring the children. Where are the children at? Bring the children. The king we know we need fights our battles on our behalf and plays on the floor with children and gives all gifts of any value. So, so the God of the Bible, the, the king, Yahweh, the, the, the one who the Hebrew nation couldn't see and couldn't grasp, gives all gifts of any value and doesn't, doesn't take by force. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't grab, doesn't have like grabby hands, right? Mine, mine, mine. He doesn't have a mine, 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 mine impulse. The king we know we need gives all gifts of any value and single-handedly rescued humanity from the bondage of sin and death. The king that we want has corrupting authority over human hearts. I'm using this metaphorically because there have been thousands of corrupt kings throughout history and there have been thousands of metaphorical kings that have manifested themselves in our lives but are actually not human beings, but they still have kingly authority over our hearts. This started generations and generations and generations and generations ago. You see, during the Hellenistic period in ancient Greece, which was a period where new ideas and new artwork and new science were integrating into the life of Greek society, there was also a new commitment to posturing, and it was posturing on behalf of false gods. And so when I say false gods, what I mean is someone masquerading to be God. The word there is proskinesis, and it's Greek. Pro as in move towards, and kinesis as in bending or, or flexing. And so I want you to picture this. I'm going to try to do it, but this might go really, really bad. But proskinesis was really this, this beautiful idea of people would get to their knees and out of honor for like a, a God subject or a God object, what they would do is they would put their, like their knees all the way down like this and then they'd put their hands all the way down like this and they would put their foreheads on the floor. That's proskinesis. That was the idea, was that there was this veneration or high worship of these false gods or false idols within the Roman Greco world, specifically the Hellenistic period where all this new fresh ideas was flowing into Greek life. And so proskinesis, I mean, we're talking about an ancient practice. 
and that physical, that physical posturing. It sends a message, doesn't it? Well, that eventually influenced the church. Not so much in a negative way, but in a positive way. You know, throughout the Middle Ages and the middle of a medieval period of time, there was this new veneration of symbols and icons. And this was kind of think like Middle Ages high church mentality. And so there's lots of art and lots of depictions of the Christ. And there's lots of symbology and icons which helped people um, experience the presence of Christ more closely. And any good thing that becomes an absolute thing turns into a bad thing. And we've seen that throughout history. And so there's a little bit of redeeming quality to icons and symbology and art, but it, it must never become the absolute thing. It just needs to point to the absolute thing. And art's no different. So I want you to take a, a look at this piece of medieval art here on the screen. And this is, this is not proskinesis. This is actually called genuflection. Genuflection, coming from the Latin genuflectio, means almost the exact same thing. That genu, which is to posture towards, and flexion, which is to flex or bend. Genuflexion is not proskinesis. Genuflexion is taking one knee or both knees, and it was a medieval practice in the presence of a lord or a king or, or something like that. So there was, this, there was a respect exchange. There was a respect exchange from the person to the person being venerated or worshipped. And in this piece of artwork, what you'll see is a priest venerating a symbol, hoping that that icon would be, bring him closer to the presence of the Christ. At the time, I'm sure it actually helped. I mean, they didn't have, like, PAs for worship, right? They didn't have technology. They didn't have anything like that. They were, they were relegated to what they had what they had was art, they had icons, they had symbols, and some of it was probably used really, really well in a holy kind of way, and it was beautiful. Th this posturing of genuflection, this taking a knee before a king, a lord in the medieval period, or both knees before a symbol or an icon, is completely lost on our culture. That posturing is mostly lost in our culture. Mostly because we have been trained and conditioned from day one that we are our own authorities. And I bow to no one. And I take the knee before no one. Don't you tell me who to bow before? Are you kidding me? I won't just take the knee before anyone. I mean, I might get on my knee to propose to my wife, but that is about it. Any other genuflection is out the window. Any other kneeling, any other sign of, of respect, any other, any other show of posturing of, 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 of honor for the king or the Lord in my life, I am my own authority. I want to ask you a question this morning. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or you are just curious enough about God to attend a worship service at a church. What's the name of the king you kneel before? What's his or her name? Boy, I hope it's Jesus, but what is his or her name? 
Because there have been times in every one of our lives that we have genuflected, a posturing, a kneeling, whether it is a physical kneeling or a kneeling of your heart. I think the power of the name profit margin, that's a name of a king we all have bowed before. How about the name my opinion? That's a name we've all bowed before. What about the name other people's opinions? That's a name we've all bowed before. What about a ideology at the center of any culture war? That's the name of a king we've all bowed before. Metaphors aside, is it quite literally that there is a human subject in your world that has the authority in your life that you have been genuflecting before? Is someone getting your veneration, your worship? Is someone getting honor and respect in your world and his or her name is not Jesus? There's great, profound danger in this. In a world that teaches and champions self-authority, in a society that celebrates self-governance, in a world that says you are your own queen and king and lord, don't you bow before anything or anyone. No one is worthy. You are. And this is the marching cry. These are the marching orders of a society that perverts the very truth of God. These are the marching orders and champion cries and cheerleading words of a world of a spirituality void of Jesus. There is profound danger in being your own authority. Your awareness of your own heart is quite low. Our hearts are so deceptive. And the world calls on us to follow them as if they are the ones who know where they're going. Your heart's compass is going like this. There is profound danger in being your own authority, and perhaps there's a human in the room that's been trying to be their own authority for many years, and you are wondering, why is this going so poorly? Oh, my heart just bleeds or breaks for you, sister or brother. You've been trying to be your own authority. You take the knee to no one but yourself. You will genuflect you and you alone. And you are wondering, why am I in a chronic state of pain or perpetual disappointment? Why is it that I look around and I feel this void in my gut, in my heart, in my mind? Why is it that I am so subjected to the ups and the downs of my own emotions? Why is it 
is I just follow myself so easily. Well, you see, God will sometimes give you what you want to show you what you need. God is not above allowing you to feel a little bit of pain and a little bit of disappointment and a little bit of trauma. So when you meet him, you've got something to compare him against. It's not good unless you've got some bad to compare and contrast with. And there's a human being, there's a, there's a man and there's a woman in this room. You've been trying to be your own authority now for so long, but you are here this morning. So it tells me that you are willing to see who else might have the authority in my life. I mean, after all, I've tried to be the authority in my life now just for so long and I've just gotten nowhere. You've come to a great place. You've come to a, a wonderful place. So part of my unique role, it's super cool, guys. I tell you, the invitations that are extended my way are so, so odd sometimes and, and beautiful. And it's a huge privilege. I got invited to go um, pray and sit with Governor Holcomb. This is not a political grandstanding of any kind. I frankly don't even care who you vote for. I care who you worship, right? But I got invited nonetheless to go to Governor Holcomb's office about two weeks ago. And I'll never forget this incredible kingdom-like moment when I entered the State House. Beautiful structure built in 1888. And you gotta love Indiana, right? They've got this big plaque in the middle of the, the uh, State House that says, uh, here was the budget for this facility in 1888, and we finished under budget, and before the deadline, <laughs> you just got to love Indiana being like, yeah, we did it under budget. We did it before the deadline. And it was just like a couple bucks under, but whatever. You walk into the state house and there is this like, there's a vibe. You walk into that state house and there is this like, there's this like impulse. There's like this sensation. You walk in and everyone is dressed like they look so good. So good. Like I walked in there, I'm like, I should have worn something better. Like I felt out of place. You there, is a, there is a small kingdom in state houses. People look amazing. There's art everywhere. There's like, there's like this vibe. It's kind of like an exciting vibe. Like everyone's like moving and grooving really fast. The whole place is just bustling with life and everyone's getting to their next thing and there's, this, there's all these things happening. And then we go up to Governor Holcomb's office. He's got like an office before his office, like a pre-office. It's crazy. There's like a pre-office to the office. So we walk in. There's like someone making like a super bougie niche coffee over here. He's got some like security detail over here. And then he opens the door and his secretary, there's like myself and um, like six other pastors from the other state. We all walked into his office and regardless of what you think of Governor Holcomb, the dude's like seven feet tall, it's like crazy. We walk in, we sit at this massive, massive, glorious, majestic like table, the nicest chairs I've ever seen in my life. And for some small talk, he's just pointing out artwork throughout the office. He's like, oh yeah, that artwork means this. I'm like, oh wow, that's 
It's actually quite powerful. That artwork means this. This means that. This portion right here was redone in, the, in this part of you know, history. And then there's a portion over here. And you would describe all these like unique historical like moments in, in the office. And we are talking like this is the office of all offices in the state of Indiana. I remember thinking to myself, just like, this is so odd. That someone who serves four, maybe eight years gets an office this glorious and this majestic and like this impressive. And the architecture and the time put into it and the artwork and the stories and just like the staff and being waited on hand and foot and the, they, they brought in this like super bougie coffee. Turns out government coffee is dope. Like it is so good. So good. We had a great conversation. He allowed us to speak into his life. He offered some thoughts, a bunch of pastors. We all just kind of prayed for him. It was, it was special, but it was nothing special at the same time, if you kind of know what I mean. It was, it was really cool. And I got to thinking, <laughs> how, how is it that the king of the universe that was deserving of like a palace opted for like a barn? How is it that the king of the universe who was like deserving of butlers and servants waiting on him hand and foot delivering niche bougie coffee opted for a rugged cruel cross? Like Jesus deserved a crown of jewels and he opted for a crown of thorns? Like Jesus should have had butlers and staffers have their own palaces for their own offices. And he should have had something beyond and above that, but he chose and opted for something contrary to that. And yet our hearts are impressed with human-like kings and kings and queens Figures of authority, beautiful offices. There's nothing wrong with a beautiful office, but you get the analogy here. All of that could have been his, but yet he opted voluntarily for this homeless carpenter kind of life. Serving the needs of the poor, bringing sinners into his presence, calling out the pride of religious leaders. Jesus deserved everything, and he was treated like dirt. And that is your king. Who is getting your knee? Who? Who gets your bruised knee? Who gets your sore knee? Because we have a king. We have a king in his name, is Jesus. And if you ever walk into a state house or a church or a home and people present a spirituality void of Jesus, you put your running shoes on and you run out of that place as fast as you can, screaming the name of Jesus at the top of your lungs because Philippians 2 says that at the name of who? Jesus. Every knee will bow and tongue confess. Not Caesar, not Nero, not Alexander the Great. 
not any historical figure, not the pangs of your heart, not the anxiety in your soul. It is the name of Jesus that gets every knee. And has the power to reorient your heart towards him. What is the name of your king? If it is not Jesus, you better lay that name down right in front of him. And you bring your broken self into the presence of God. You confess with your heart and with your mouth that he is Lord. And for someone who does not know Jesus, hear me when I say when you meet him, you will know. You will know because your heart will break. And you will feel the weight of your previous life begin to lift. You'll have something to compare your old life to. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to worship together again. But I want to just pray for all y'all. I want to pray that you would have the courage to take the knee before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because there's a King that you are bowing before right now. And his name is not Jesus. So you might want to bring that name to the altar so it can be sacrificed. So that you are before Jesus and Jesus alone. I want you to hear the name of Jesus so many times your ears begin to ring the name of Jesus. You need to hear the name of Jesus so much that the weight and the majesty of his name brings your frame to the floor. You hear me? You need Jesus. Oh God, thank you for these moments that we will never forget when we can see clearly our own sin in contrast to your glory and your majesty, Jesus. We have all been guilty. We have all been guilty of bowing before someone whose name is not Jesus. Something, someone got our knee and it hurts more than it should doesn't just hurt our knees, it hurts our hearts. So God, many of us have broken and wounded hearts in these moments because we have been venerating or we have been genuflecting. We have been bowing and kneeling before a king whose name is not Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I just pray your name a thousand times over a thousand to the hearts of all the humans in this room. May Jesus be ringing and echoing in our hearts and in our minds. And as we sing your name, as we are moved by the majestic, powerful, mighty name of Jesus, may our relationship with you begin to take shape in a whole, fresh, new way. And in the name of Jesus, we said.